Thanks for taking the time to listen to this Equality, Diversity and Inclusion podcast brought to you by the NHS Confederation's Mental Health Network and the Midlands and East Regional Talent Board. Welcome everyone to the first in a two-part podcast series on equality, diversity and inclusion in the health sector. I'm Sally Scales, Head of Executive Search at the NHS Leadership Academy and member of the Regional Talent Boards. Today I'm joined by a panel of NHS leaders to discuss the themes of equality, diversity and inclusion within the health workforce, with a particular focus on the term inclusion. We know that the NHS can and needs to do more to make sure that its workforce, especially at the highest levels, is representative of the populations it serves. Indeed, it is stipulated in the NHS long-term plan that each NHS organisation will set its own target for BAME representation across its leadership team and broader workforce by 2021-22. In this episode, we will explore what it means to have these targets and whether it is indeed a positive move to help increase inclusive representation on boards. We will also look at the current broader situation of diversity and inclusion within the NHS and barriers faced by underrepresented groups. So without further ado, I want to bring our panel in on this important topic. Can I start by asking each of you to introduce yourselves? Hello, my name's Tracy Jolliffe. I'm the Director of Inclusion at the NHS Leadership Academy. So I'm Joan Sadler, I'm Director here at the NHS Confederation and I have a special remit around making sure that our corporate priority of EDI, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion, is acted upon across the group for the first time. Nick Carver, currently Chief Executive of the Eastern North Hearts NHS Trust. In addition, for the last 18 months or so, I've chaired the Midlands and East Regional Talent Board. And essentially, we're trying to improve the somewhat abject quality of our talent management across the health service. So to start us off, um, I thought it would be helpful just to talk about um, some of the targets which have been recently set. So um, as I mentioned in the intro, the long-term plan has looked at working with individual organisational targets and letting individual organisations set their own targets. Nick, coming to you first, do you, do, do you agree with the decision to allow trusts to define their own representation targets? Well, I suppose as a Chief Executive, I've spent a lifetime dealing with targets of very various sorts. And I think where your performance isn't good enough, it's good to have a target. It's good to be encouraged to do, do better and to be monitored to ensure that you do get better. And I think, frankly, the record of targets in the health service is not all bad. There's been some significant improvements in terms of targets being set and performance I- improving. But equally, I think sometimes if you have a target, you can pursue the targets and miss the point. So I don't have a problem per se with a target, but let's not miss the point here. We really want to make sure that we have, in every sense, a far more diverse workforce and far more diverse leadership in the health service. And Tracy, what are your views on hard targets and quotas in this particular area? It's interesting because um, evidence tells us that setting targets on women's representation at the most senior levels um, works. Uh, We know it works. Um, We know it accelerates the pace of change and so there's no reason why in principle setting targets for BAME representation at the most senior levels also should not work. Um, I think um, in the past we have had too lower expectations and ambitions in this area of work. Um, So um, what what we've done is we've assumed that if we're getting more representation of women at senior levels, that that will trickle down to all women. The data is telling us that that trickle-down effect doesn't work. So there is a need for us to look at the BAME issue specifically, acknowledge that we're not making progress on it, 
in any way near the ways in which we'd hoped. Um, think about how we can have the conversations that matter in order to progress the, the agenda. And we'll know when we're having the conversations that matter because they won't be comfortable conversations. John, given your introduction and interest in kind of inclusive leadership, do we need to be thinking much more creatively than simply setting the targets alone? I think we need both if we think about how we uh, get great performance in the NHS. And, and as you know, we talked about chief executives, you, you set your targets, you set your goals, you're very clear about what you want to achieve. The how can be pretty mixed, but you're very clear about what you want. I think there is, so there's two things, there's a misunderstanding about what equality and diversity and inclusion as an improvement tool is. It's an improvement discipline. And then secondly, there's sometimes apprehension in using that tool for a number of reasons. Some to do with prejudice, racism. Some to do with not being expert enough and thinking you're expert enough about using this tool. And some being a kind of reticence, this will take away from the day job. I'm really busy, we've got loads to do. So why on earth are we doing this? Uh, so I think actually we can get better at making that case. Uh, for, for those of us working on these issues. But secondly, there is something that says the asset-based way in which we should look at this issue has been missing. And so for a long time, we've, we have thought that the, the negativity uh, of our progress is down to the people we want to engage. When actually we all know and we're all saying, aren't we, it's down to the system. And that's for all equalities areas. Thank you. That's interesting. Um, the targets are often around um, kind of the diversity of people um, entering senior levels, but there's not much around kind of what do we do once people are appointed to those roles. Um, Tracy, coming to you, what do you feel are the adjustments that people from underrepresented backgrounds are having to make once they arrive into NHS leadership positions? What I see across the system is that the people who bear the brunt of discrimination are doing most of the heavy lifting. They're raising the issues, they're putting their lived experience in the room, they're talking about discrimination and harassment in staff surveys, you know, and really we haven't invested enough in leadership development, first of all, that um, equips leaders with the capabilities, insights, understanding, um, in order to be those, those change makers themselves. Thanks Tracy. Nick, as, as, as a leader in the system, what are your thoughts on this? Many of our best people aren't coming through to senior levels, but then that's inevitable. If you have a system of ad hocism, which is what we've created in the health service, and you don't have proper talent management systems, you waste that great potential. And so what you end up with is people who are naturally self-presenters coming forward into the most senior position. The people, if you like, have pushed themselves forward. Now we know that if you're part of an, an underrepresented group, then actually you're less likely to push yourself forward. You're likely to be lacking in confidence. But lots of our great leaders, potentially for the future, are not in a position where they feel comfortable in pushing themselves forward. So we have to really do much better in terms of developing good quality talent management systems to enable those organisational assets, those people who will make our health service better in the future, to come through.
some of the things we've been touching on is all around kind of um, developing individuals, developing pipelines, being able to um, bring on people from underrepresented groups, the same as we would um, everyone else. How do the panel feel about programmes that actively seek to improve the NHS's commitment to diversity and inclusion, and particularly any positive areas of work that you've seen around talent pipelines and development in this area? I, I think of five or six people who during the uh, jerky progress of my decidedly imperfect career have had, had very significant influence to helping me uh, keep on broadly the straight and narrow. Uh, but I think we need to have something better than just individual actions of good laudable people. And so I think these more formal programmes are, are, are really important. And I think as I was indicating earlier, that's got to tie into a far more structured approach to talent management. Because, because I think you know we've got many people of merit as we were saying earlier who've made it to the top of the health service but do you know what we've got lots of really good people who perhaps haven't made the progression they could have made because of our unstructured approach. Tracy? So there are a number of different kinds of programs that we could we could have in this space some of those programs would be positive action programs but not positive action programs that are coming from a deficit model i.e. we need to fix the women because they're not progressing or we need to fix the BAME or LGBT people or the people with disabilities um, these positive action programs need to have an emphasis on the fact that our systems are unfair and therefore for people who are most affected by that lack of fairness they need to understand how to navigate through those systems and also to help other people to work more fairly. Do any of our panel members have anything to say about that in terms of how, how, how you've done it or how you've seen others? So. Um Again, it's, it's really interesting. So when I, I think I chaired a PCT from about 2002, 2007, something like that. Good six, seven years of long, hard slog and um, a primary care trust. And, and what I did when I got into the organisation was look around me. The headquarters was in a very diverse part of London on the outskirts. And we had a floor of executive and senior leaders who were all white, actually. So. Um, with myself and my chief executive, I kind of just said, okay, this needs to change, doesn't it? We agreed, and it changed. Within the space of 18 months, I suppose we came to prominence as the most diverse board in uh, England, which kind of shocked and horrified me at the same time, because if you're in a diverse part of London, why on earth wouldn't you have a diverse board? It was, you know, big news, it was a big deal. But it brings me to the current situation. If there is will, if there is absolute clear focus on this needs to change, it does. We're really good at that in the NHS. So why can't, you know, this focus on, uh, I don't know, let's say 18 weeks. Yeah, really difficult. 62-week uh, target. Quite tricky to do, but actually when we focus, when we put the resource in, we get there. So I know that organisations uh, like East London Foundation Trust, you know, one of the best performing trusts consistently around this area, We've had some pretty good leadership from a non-executive chair in the Royal Free at London. He has a whole kind of raft of initiatives where, you know, I want to know why people are not coming through our organisation, uh, every appointment, that's now becoming um, more used, where every appointment that hasn't had a diverse candidate has been appointed, I want to know, and I want to know why mapping actually the results, looking at how long it would take for this organisation, the Royal Free, to get to the representation it should have, the same as the population, over years, 
to short, medium and long term, and knowing the exact figures. And I just want to say on that, I think that there is a little bit of a misnomer in terms of what the long term plan is certainly saying around race and organisations setting their own targets, again, which I totally agree with. Why? Because we've been so poor on this agenda over the last 25 years. What they are saying is, we are going to use the data, that is the Workforce Race Equality Standard Team, we're going to use the data, actual data, about what your population looks like, what your staff makeup looks like, and what your board looks like. And based on those uh, uh, numbers of also what your staff looks like, the BME numbers within your staff, we're going to use all of that data to work with you to say, well, here's what your, your target should look like. Uh, it, it's interesting, isn't it? I want to know what I can do as a white chief executive to make my workplace more, more inclusive. You know, I was born from a working class background. My father was bombed out of his house by the Luftwaffe in the East End in the Second World War. My, my mother came from Italian uh, parents who immigrated into this country. Um, you know, I, I don't have a background of privilege, of immense privilege. But what I do have to accept is that my background now, the position I'm in, places me in a position of immense privilege. And I also need to accept that the experiences that others have are not the experiences that I've had. So, you know, I've never, thank God, been followed around a shop with somebody assuming that I'm going to steal something because of the colour of my skin. You know, I've never been abused because of my sexuality. And, and, and I can assure you, I've never been wolf-whistled by uh, lorry drivers or whatever. So I need to enter into the position of those from different backgrounds, don't I, really? and then create this structured approach that enables people from different backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds to come through. But, but equally, let's not assume that all, you know, use an awful phrase, all, all heterosexual middle-aged white men are, are the same in terms of their backgrounds. We all have different backgrounds and experiences. Tracy, Joan, what are your thoughts on kind of the role of allies or senior leaders as allies around this agenda? So, um, Nick mentioned a number of things just now. He talked about recognising that not everybody has the same experience as he does, recognising some of the lived experience and being followed around a shop um, and assumed to be a thief before you get in the door of the shop, um, and a number of other, other themes. And I wish that all of my white senior leaders understood that stuff that Nick has just articulated, because I think that the, the piece which goes, I experience the organisation like this, and therefore other people do, is one of the biggest barriers that we have in this space. And an acknowledgement of um, the fact that people have different experiences means that we have to start to listen. We have to start to find out what those experiences are and we have to listen to what those experiences are and we then need to act on what's being said to us, not on the assumptions that I bring, you know, because I've found that this hasn't been a barrier or that hasn't been a barrier. And, you know, that's easy to say but it's not easy to do because oftentimes what happens is when people have lived experience and they start to talk about their lived experience, the, the way that the system works is to close down those conversations, is to deny people's realities, is to avoid discomfort and do all manners of shape-shifting in order to, to not have to really acknowledge that this person in my team is saying that this team isn't as inclusive as I thought it was. Thanks, Tracy. Joan? 
I have to constantly address the question, and I'm happy to do so, why is there this focus on the workforce race equality standard? Um, and, and again, it's about the NHS doing two things at the same time. So we have a duty for all equality, all inclusion, all diversity. When the data tells us that for the last 20 years we're failing on the question of race, we have to do something differently. And that's what is happening at the moment. And it's starting to show, show some success. What do we then do? We move to the next indicator that's telling us we're not doing well on this at all, and it's disability. Right? So the Workforce Disability Equality Standard just launched from April. Trusts will be um, reporting as they do in the same way for the RES programme. And we're looking at making sure that the experience of people with disabilities is not disproportionate, particularly in the workplace. So again, there's something about when we talk about allies, each of us are allies. How do we make sure that we're not leaving anybody behind? And how do we go where the data tells us we need to go with some very clear, this is not going to continue. And I think that's what the res is about. And that's what the WDES is about. But we all have a, a, a responsibility to ensure that nobody is lagging. How do we make sure um, programmes like the Athena programme or the, the Ready Now and Stepping Up, Tracy, the programmes that you're involved in, do start to make a difference in helping people progress their careers? What we've done is we've had programmes in isolation of and nothing else. So we send somebody on a programme, put them back in work and expect something to happen. It ain't going to happen. You know, what we need are programmes that are linked to stretch opportunities, shadowing, mentoring, secondments, um, you know, opportunities for people to um, really progress. We need sponsorship, you know, in there for people to actually say, you know what, I'm going to be a sponsor for this person, I'm going to follow it through. I'm going to help them to make connections in the networks that matter. I'm going to help them to... Um, understand what the unwritten rules of the game are here. And, and that's the kind of work that we need um, to, to change things. You know, I, I only learned years ago that most chief executives, and, and you'll know this, they have coaches. And those coaches are an invaluable resource. I'm not saying everybody does, but this whole idea of, oh, you just get there because you're good. It's just not true. <laughs> you get there because actually there are a lot of people around you telling you the rules and helping you into those positions when you're good enough. Nick? We spend tens of thousands of pounds on people and then don't see them progress in a supported way to secondment opportunities, to shadowing, to being supported in the next, next role with that role being de-risked. There's many great individuals who do that at a local level, but we don't have a systematic approach to linking development and opportunity. Well, that brings a close to the first episode in our two-part series. In the next episode, we will look at how we can improve things in equality, diversity and inclusion. Our panel will discuss how to be an ally. What do we need to do to support these people going forward that will really help us on this journey? And we will also explore how we can support people through talent management policy. We are understanding or beginning to understand how many vacancies we've got. The regional talent boards will enable us to know that. Thanks for listening. To find out more about the subject of diversity and inclusion, you can access our other podcasts, which are available on the NHS Confederation website, or by searching for the Mental Health Network on SoundCloud, Stitcher or Acast.